I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from Mass Live, it is Brian. Rob has an article up right now. Celtics offseason timeline, Danilo Gallinari deadline, and Mike Muscala option date. B. Rob, what's going on, man? We haven't talked since the end of Game Seven. Have you recovered? <laughs> uh, I I gotta say, I, I wouldn't hate if the NBA decides to stretch out these uh, these every other day conference finals uh, to the more the NBA final schedule every third day. I think that would lead to better <laughs> basketball and better coverage from the the, uh, the beat writers of the world. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, man, that was, it was quite, the, it was kind of nuts that you go, they went from game six to game seven and from that high to that much below in uh, 48 hours. It would, but it certainly sets the stage for an interesting offseason here. Yeah, you're right though about the games in between because you get less fatigue on both sides too, where you get more time in between those days, which we see early in the postseason, like the first round, sometimes you may have like three days in between games and, then when we get to this point, you don't have it. I get it. It's a TV thing and all that, but it does kind of suck from a player's perspective because those are those aren't your normal like 38 minutes you're playing in a regular season game. Those are really hard minutes. And a lot of these guys are obviously playing more minutes than they ordinarily do. So before we get into the Celtics, we need to touch on this Kyrie Irving story. How about this one? <laughs> <laughs> How about this, man? Sham Sharani reported Monday that our old friend Kyrie, he reached out to LeBron about joining the Mavericks. Zig, this is the typical Kyrie, right? This is classic. So before we get into the logistics, LeBron is due to make 46.9 next year and 50.6 million in a player option the following year. The Mavericks were 8 and 12 when Kyrie Irving was in the lineup. And so now he's basically he had no leverage for a while in Brooklyn, right? They're like, "Hey, we're not giving you the contract." So he just said, "Okay, I want to trade." Like mid-season he was playing well for a little bit, "Hey, I want to trade." So now he has this little bit of leverage because the Mavericks are at a really difficult place with Luka Doncic, right? So he's saying, hey, you guys need to give me all the money and you got to trade for my friend LeBron James. Like, it's so easy to do. It's unbelievable to me to see 
the Kyrie situation. Like when I saw this, I thought, well, we thought he was going to the Lakers, right? Like he's been talking to LeBron. He's at LeBron's games sitting courtside. And now he just zags. And I can't say like initially when I saw that, I'm like, wow. But thinking about it, I'm like, well, this actually, it makes perfect sense that Kyrie would suggest this. I mean, he's a big logic guy, Brian. This is like he's <laughs> logic has dictated his career in the last few years, particularly. Um, it's just it's it's funny on so many levels. And I, I appreciate the fact now that he is uh, knowing that Dallas is really going to be the only team that's probably going to pay him. Uh, this season. he's already thrown all the teammates under the bus by saying, yeah, I want to like dump you guys for for LeBron, <laughs> for a guy that we have literally no chance that like the, the Lakers would just hang up the phone immediately if that phone call was made for anyone uh, not involving Luca, because um, that roster, it is not not impressive to say the least. So it's it, I mean, it's classic. Kyrie. This is like everyone, you know, in this in the Boston area can just sit, sit back and laugh anytime any of these stories come out at this point. Yeah, and Kyrie can look at it and say, well, hey, I wanted to stay, but you couldn't get me LeBron. I was being reasonable. (laughs) All I wanted was the Max and LeBron James. It's a very easy thing to do. I gave you my demands. But, man, it's unbelievable. Kyrie is the gift that keeps on giving. All right, so let's get to the big hiring for the Celts. They get Sam Cassell. And we saw Steven Silas around the team a little bit, and obviously he goes to the Pistons. But I prefer Cassell to Silas for a couple of reasons. Now, the first one is... I like sort of the former player as the lead assistant and a guy that had a good career, obviously familiarity with the organization as well. I love that element. And he's a big personality. Like we've seen him on the sidelines. He will absolutely lay into guys. And I know there was some buzz around Silas, but, and I know the Houston situation was weird, right? Because immediately he gets there, James Harden wants to get traded. So he's coaching a team that he didn't think he would be coaching But you just look at this team this year, and they did beat the Celtics in one game, which was a terrible loss for the Celtics. But anyway, they built out some awful habits. 20.6 opponents points off turnovers last. 17.5 opponents fast break points per game last. They gave up 20.5 wide open threes per game last in the NBA. And I understand that there was a lot of young guys, but it didn't feel like there was a lot of buy-in from those young guys. And we see young teams across the league, like, for example, what Will Hardy did with Utah. That team is building up good habits, right? It's not like... If you have young players, you can still build up good habits. It didn't seem like that was the case either way with Silas. So I thought schematically that team, they had some really bad ideas. They were just crashing the glass like crazy. And then secondarily, he clearly wasn't getting through to the players. So that's why I think a guy like Sam Cassell is a much better guy to be sort of your lead assistant with a guy in Joe Missoula, who I think would certainly benefit from having a guy that does have that big personality. And I do think you could see Sam Cassell at times, like behind closed doors, being like, Joe, no, we have to do this. We should be doing this. So I really like this hire. And this is the thing that everybody pointed to. They need a veteran assistant. I like it. What did you make of the move? Yeah, it's it's hard to argue for anything you just said, right? It's a situation where the players themselves, like when they were advocating for Emi to be hired here, like they they wanted this. They were saying, like, we want the player, former player as a coach that gets on us, that doesn't hold back. And Ime appeared to do that and clearly earned the buy-in from them during that one year he was here. Joe Mazzula, um was not in that mold, um, at least publicly. Who, you know, who's to say what he is behind closed doors, but that's a player's coach guy, a guy who was, it was hard to find him saying a negative thing about a player all year long. Whereas Ime on, you know, after the third game of the season was throwing the whole team under the bus. And so now with, with Cassell <laughs> coming into the fold here, you at least have a guy and the Celtics losing Damon Stoudemire midway through the season, a guy who probably was playing that role and was lost at honestly a brutal spot. It was kind of overlooked at the time. I'm still shocked that no one was 
brought in from the outside as to kind of fill that void. Um, but that's, you know, that's in the past now, but now you have someone in that mold and gazelle who's, who's won multiple titles, who's been around the block, um, 10 plus year now is probably has earned a, a head coaching job somewhere. And I mean, I think it's a really good move for him in his career now too, because no matter what happens, happens with the Celtics here, if, if he helps to get the Celtics over the top, then he's going to look, you know, like a great spot to get that next job next year. And if not, and if Joe, if things go sideways next year, then I think Sam is like the logical guy to potentially step in that place here. I expect Joe to get, you know, pretty uh, longer leash here with the ability to form his own staff. But um, if if things do go wrong there, there is a, a natural successor in place, it seems like now. That's a phenomenal point, too, because we knew that Sam Cassell in the past had been interviewing for head coaching opportunities. But you make a great point. This is sort of the best of both worlds, because if you're really successful, you're going to get more credit than Joe maybe next year, right? Sure. And teams across the league say, hey, Sam Cassell is ready for an opening. And if it gets really bad with Joe, they're going to say, uh, yeah, we got this Sam Cassell guy on the bench that could take over, which maybe that's part of the logic with the Ben Sullivan situation where we have the reporting that he's going to Houston and we know the situation where he came in with Ime, great relationship with Ime and all that. But from Ben Sullivan's perspective, and of course, Cassell, that news comes out after Sullivan, but maybe he looks at it like, okay, well, I know they're going to bring in a veteran coach because Brad Stevens said that at his exit interview that they wanted to bring in a veteran guy. So if we improve and we actually get back to the finals and maybe we win it, Sam Cassell is going to get more, or whoever that veteran is, is going to get more credit than me, even if that's unfair. But if I go to Emay's staff in Houston, where they're going to have an opportunity, they're clearly going to be better than they were last year. And Emay, that strong personality, is probably better for that young Houston team. Well, then maybe I'm going to get opportunities at a head coaching opportunity. So maybe that is sort of the idea with Sullivan. And we know there's the connection there with Emay, but Ben Sullivan's chance of getting a head coaching opportunity down the road his best fit may be Houston as well, rather than the Celtics. Yeah, there, there's no doubt for the EMA's entire assistant staff, like for and the guys at the front of the bench in particular, for, for Joe to kind of lap them last year and get that spot when EMA um, was suspended, like that, that kind of tells you where you're viewed as by the franchise on that front. And that's a tough spot. Like he's, um, and you, you understand both sides of it because the Celtics, it's like, okay, this head coach that we had to just suspend for a year, like these are all his guys. So are we going to suspend Ime and then put one of his guys in charge? Like that, that could go either way there. That's a big risk. And Brad Stevens and the Celtics knew Joe Mazzulla from his staff. They obviously thought very highly of Joe Mazzulla. And he, you know, at least in the regular season, like showed out very well in terms of being able to, he had the relationships with the players that went back more than one year. And that's when you're making a transition like that, that's like, he offered the best continuity option that they had out of everyone on that bench. Mm-hmm. But with that said, for Sullivan, like now things didn't go great this year. Um, the Celtics are clearly bringing in other people already that look like they're going to be higher than you on the bench um, in the way they talked about it. And Ime's like, your guy's Ime. So it's like, you got a fresh start in Houston. You maybe some longer term job security there. And again, if you turn that franchise around a bit, that's going to you know look well on you. Whereas under Joe, that's, you know, I don't know what the relationship is there, but obviously the the, the long-term job security may not be as secure as it is as he may getting a fresh start in Houston. Yeah, and by the way, I give those guys a ton of credit for the job they did this year, where a lot of them could have had the argument, Ben Sullivan being one and Damon Stoudemire being one, where they could have said, hey, we're more qualified for the job, but they were professional about how they went about it. So yeah, I give those guys 100%. a 
give them a ton of credit for that. Okay, so another report we have is Charles Lee could be coming to the Celtics. That's obviously not official. We're recording Tuesday at about 1.15, so we may find out more by the end of the day is over, right, in terms of Charles Lee, but was on Budenholzer's staff in Atlanta, then in Milwaukee. My biggest issue with Budenholzer is that he's too rigid outside of 2021, like he didn't want to switch defensively. And what happened when they switched defensively in 2021? They actually won this thing called the NBA championship. (laughs) So that's sort of been my aggravation with him as a coach. But what we've seen is assistants don't always do exactly what their head coach does, right? Like I think about it, for example, look at what Darvin Ham did with the Lakers. They tried all different types of lineups throughout their postseason run. He came off the Budenholzer staff as well. And the other thing about Charles Lee that interests me is he's sort of been credited for a lot of the skills coaching with the Bucks, right? That's sort of his thing. And Ben Sullivan was credited a lot with the Derek White situation and helping him with his three-point shooting this past season. So I do think that if this is another guy they're going to add to the bench, like this would be a home run offseason for the Celtics in terms of their assistance. If you got, of course, the main assistant in Sam Cassell, and then you bring in Charles Lee, a guy that's been up for head coaching opportunities as well, or at least got gotten interviews, and he's sort of the skills coach. I really think this could be a nice fit as well if they can land him. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's kind of surprising that he would still be in the mix after they get a guy like Cassell, but it is a situation where the Celtics are going to need a lot of assistance here. And they know like they're a, a lot of these guys are joining email staff in Houston. And that's not a surprise. That's something when, once email got that job talking to people behind the scenes like that, that was anticipated. I mean, if the Celtics won the title this year, then it would be tougher to maybe pry those guys away, but they didn't. And things ended rather ugly um, with the, how that series went against the heat. And so now the Celtics know, like, I mean, Joe Mazzula is a young coach. He doesn't have a huge network. Like, so you want to bring in guys that, he obviously respects and trusts and knows can or have proven track records there. And so uh, with Lee, I think it's honestly, it'll be a fascinating choice for him. He, I imagine right now he has a ton of options yeah. um, and he's, you know, he, like you said, he came up under Budholzer, but that's, that doesn't necessarily indicate what his philosophies are on all sorts of fronts, but does he view the Celtics and coming in next to a guy like Cassell and under Missoula as a get away to a, do I, will this lead to my next opportunity to my chance after he interviewed for four or five openings this off season? Or is it a situation where he thinks that he will kind of be overshadowed here and he might have a, a better chance of being a true number two with another team? I don't know. That's like, I mean, only he and his agent right now know what those options are. But the fact that the Celtics are in the mix here and the fact that they can sell me like, hey, listen, like you're, we need, like we're going to, we have a lot of important openings on our staff here and we, and there's probably no other contending team out there um, that can offer that right now as much as they can. Yeah, and especially, too, with the fact that he interviewed for these other jobs, so he probably doesn't right. want to be the lead assistant for one of those other jobs as well. Right? For example, Detroit, they go out there and they hire a guy like Monty Williams, and he may look at that and say, and he wouldn't even be the lead assistant in Detroit after, who did they, they just hired? Just got Silas. Yeah, they just got Silas. So he wouldn't be the lead assistant there. So all these other jobs, and obviously this job is more appealing than Detroit. And it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility to see two guys picked off a bench the following offseason if they win an NBA championship. I mean, it's more popular in the NFL than the NBA, but it certainly could happen. All right, so let's get to the big one before we get into some moves this team could make. Jalen Brown. I did a whole breakdown the other day, B-Rob, on how I'd be concerned about giving him the Supermax for some reasons, but 
it does feel like this is the most likely scenario for the Celtics, that they give Jalen the Supermax, because even if you kind of have to hold your nose a little bit, well, the contract probably isn't going to age as poorly as other Supermax contracts have based on the age. There's no leverage for the Celtics here because Jalen's already been upset about the trade rumors with Kevin Durant in the offseason. I feel like what happens is they put it in front of him and he ends up signing the Supermax. Is that how you feel? Yeah, I think that's the most likely path at this point for those reasons you outlined. It's it's a situation that's going to lead to tough decisions for the Celtics down the road, but ultimately they are very well positioned to win the next year or two. And you do not want to risk that by not offering this deal to him now, which I think will send up a number of red flags um, and lead to all sorts of questions throughout the year and potentially shrink that, you know, the, your biggest title window. And so you came close this year. You obviously had a number of other factors that came into play that kept you away from the NBA finals. Jalen's play was included in that list. There's not like, you know, if there was, if all else was equal, if they were having, you know, no trade, if there was no baggage with Jalen, I would say like, you might be in a decent position to negotiate as far as like a percentage of the Supermax based on how he played in that heat series, but you're not. And, and who knows? I mean, if Jalen is, and Jalen didn't sign a full max on his last contract. So he's not one who's going to be saying, yeah, like let's you, you guys take a few extra million dollars here and maybe we can build a better team in the long run. I don't think I'm guessing that's not going to be slossing. It's fair, totally fair for that not to be. And I think the, I think that leads to the, the likely set of events where they, they put that contract in front of him and he signs it. And that, you know, is just the first step in uh, to a, a big off season here. Well, once he does, if he hypothetically signs the Supermax, they should have him travel to visit Sam Cassell for the summer and just work on dribbling drills. Because <laughs> I've never seen a guy of his magnitude, his ability as a player, as good as he is as a player, be that bad of a ball handler. So I hope Sam Cassell can help Jalen when it comes to that. And we know Sam Cassell's a big skills guy. All those videos popped out last year, him working with James Harden. So hopefully that'll be the case where Cassell can help him with his ball handling. Although at this age, I'm not optimistic that that's ever going to be something that is not an issue for Jalen. All right. So one hypothetical Jalen trade that I haven't really kicked around yet, B-Reb on the pod, and I wanted to get your take on it because I did do the Garland thing. I'd be in on a Garland swap for Jalen, but Damian Lillard, this is like the big one that's out there. And he's under contract through his, what, 36-year-old season. I just look at it in terms of you have a better chance to win in the next two years with Lillard and Tatum than Lillard and Brown. And Lillard this past season, 32.2 points per game, third in the NBA, 94th percentile as a pick-and-roll ball handler, 91st percentile as an isolation scorer, 1.17 points per possession. So I understand the fear would be the length of the contract with Damian Lillard, where it's going to be bad in a couple of years, but you'd still have Jason Tatum with the Supermax, so you're still going to hypothetically, easily a top 10 player, maybe at that point a top five player in the NBA in Jason Tatum. And I look across the Eastern Conference, we were talking about Budenholzer, Milwaukee. Middleton is in a situation where he has a player option coming off a down season. Brooke Lopez is a free agent. The Miami Heat are in the freaking NBA Finals right now. And that team was what, eighth? Or they finished, uh, I guess, technically seventh, but they were eighth because they lost that original playing game. And Philly has its own issues. Who knows what's going to happen with James Harden? I get they hired Nick Nurse, but I just look at the Eastern Conference. I don't think it's that big powerhouse. And I do look at a Tatum-Lillard sort of tandem offensively with what a lot of the personnel they have defensively. 
I feel like you're the favorite to come out of the Eastern Conference. So just based on, I know the window would be shorter. I would have a really difficult time not pulling the trigger on if that's the deal. The main concern I have with Laird there, though, is just like the, the, the how these point guards age yeah. at, in their 30s. And we've seen that firsthand here. And Lillard, I think, is a more playoff-proven player than the likes of, you know, like Kemba or something like that. But that's still something where you look at Jalen's age, you look at Lillard's age, and you just wonder, like, can they, can they, put, can they push more all in? I like your philosophy on pushing more all in. I just wonder if you can do that without having to make such a drastic move. And there's a lot of moving parts in play here from a, from a Blazers angle of like, would, would Jalen even be willing to stay there? Like, you know, they can't re-sign him immediately with the new CBA. So that opens up a whole bunch of being like, well, what, what are the Blazers going to want out of it in terms of how much they can push for there? So, but yeah, you're, I mean, the, the pairing, makes more sense on paper for the the near term. But I think there are enough complicating factors for the long term and just the all the different angles that it poses that if this was a trade that was, you know, gonna happen, I ex- I would have expected it to happen like sooner than now. I would have expected that in like the last couple of years. Yeah, I just think about a Tatum Lillard pairing in the postseason. I think they'd be absolutely impossible to defend, especially if you got Rob as the lob threat. But I understand your point. I mean, we've seen it throughout the history of this league. These point guards over the age of 30 tend to really age rapidly. And the Lillard thing is going to be interesting on Portland's perspective, too, because how many teams like can make a Dame trade, like have what it takes yeah. to make a Dame trade? But the Jalen thing is a, a fascinating a point about this whole thing, too, because Portland's like, OK, we're going to rent Jalen Brown for a year and then we're giving up our superstar who's been the guy, the face of the organization for more than a decade now. It's just they're in a tough spot too because Jalen, there's no way, the, there's no reason for him to sign before the following offseason. So, yeah, I think the most likely thing is Jalen on the Supermax back with the Celtics. So, I did want to run by some of the guards. It feels like to me, and I mentioned this, that either Smart or Brogdon has to move. It feels like they don't need all three of those guys. And I feel like it took away from some Derek White minutes this season. A lot of these closing games are Derek White. Was it in? Do you feel like both Smart and Brogdon will be back next season? I'd say, I mean, it's certainly possible. I would, I would imagine if you're going to move around things on the piece, those are the two most likely pieces to be like dangled in trade talks just to see, not necessarily to like definitely move them, but to see what you can get for them. Because to your point, Derek White, I and mean, we talked about this all season long, I feel like he, the one of Joe Mazzulla's biggest mistakes over the course of the year was not riding with him in those crunch time spots in so many of those regular season games. And that I think came, I don't know if it obviously didn't cost him the series overall, but the, the fact that he was benched at the end of game two against the, the, the heat for the majority of those minutes, I think was just like absolutely brutal. And you have, you have some redundancy in that group and, and Brogdon's the, the most obvious choice, especially with how things ended with him. He coming off the injury, he looked terrible um, in the conference finals. I mean, you can't, knock him too much for that but um even before that in the playoffs i thought that his you know his value he was up and down he was not like uh he was great in the regular season six man of the year um but as far as like making a difference on this team for what you're paying him and what you have to pay other guards in this roster it's like are those resources better allocated elsewhere um and so that that's what i kind of come down to with him and smart i think it's from a culture standpoint, it's easier to trade him than smart. 
given the ramifications that we'll have. But um, it also might be a situation where, like, what's what's this team's payroll concerns right now? Is Grant coming back? Like, are you is ownership going to bring everyone back and then you just add more to this? Like, they could do that too, and there could be a case to be made for this. Is like, okay, just let's try to fill in those gaps more and run this back with a little more continuity and see what it looks like. Yeah, I do want to get to the Grant thing in a second here, but with the Brogdon point, the thing that fascinated me in the postseason is, and we saw this throughout the regular season as well, but maybe you're not paying as close attention to it during the regular season because it's not like every possession is important. I've never seen a guy at the guard position like that unwilling to pass. And I'm not saying he's a selfish player. It's just he has blinders on. He does not have good vision. I mean, if he's driving to the basket, nobody else is getting the ball, right? So, and... Out of the three, he's clearly the weakest defender. He can't guard his own position. He can only guard. It feels like he can only guard up. Even like the guy that he held up the best with in the playoffs was James Harden because James Harden was a little bit bigger. And then James Harden eventually took advantage of him in certain spots. So I do feel like that would be and there will be a market for a guy that was just top five in the NBA in three point shooting. He was one of the best pull up three point shooters in the league. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I just don't feel like the Celtics. He really helps where they need it. So I did have a and hypothet- replacement in Peyton Pritchard, too. Like you have a low cost yeah. replacement. Yeah. If you want to keep Peyton Pritchard around and we'll see what happens with him this offseason. We know he was unhappy at points, but I did have a hypothetical Brogdon trade. So here it is. It's with the Brooklyn Nets. Dorian Finney-Smith and Seth Curry, essentially for Brogdon. Now, the money matches. Here's the argument the Nets would have. They're, they have bridges. They, I would think, want to pay Cam Johnson, who is obviously a better player than Dorian Finney-Smith on the offensive end of the court. Finney-Smith had a down shooting year, 33.7% from deep in Dallas and Brooklyn this past season. But two years ago, 39.5. Three years ago, 39.4. So, from a Celtics angle, you get another catch-and-shoot wing that doesn't need the ball. He's not going to be like Brogdon, a guy that needs to have the ball in his hands and be a high-usage guy when he's actually on the court. And with Curry, he knows that he's just a bench guy, right? Even though Malcolm Brogdon took on that role as the sixth man of the year, Curry can come off the bench and give you the between 17 and 20 minutes a game, or maybe more than that, 20, depending on who's in, who's out of the lineup. And The thing that I've been interested in in the postseason is all these teams that incorporate the handoff game. We see it with Miami and we see it with Denver. We saw it with a team like Sacramento with Sabonis. And I'm not saying the Celtics have the best hub for that. But if you look at Curry's numbers off handoffs, 1.111 points per possession, almost 60% effective field goal, 76 percentile. He feels like to me a guy that would know, hey, this is my role. I'm coming off the bench. I'm trying to score. I'm at the point of my career where I'm just trying to win a championship. And Finney Smith, I'm betting that the shooting is going to return to what it was a couple of years ago. And the Celtics have been short on the wing line, even though we talk about the strength of this team being the wings outside of Brown and Tatum, they didn't really have a lot of wings. I wonder if that is too much in return for Brogdon, but I feel like that's the type of move that would make sense for me where you get a wing and they get a guard. And if you look at Brooklyn, they don't really have a lot of good guards, right? They were playing Spencer Dinwiddie was like handling the ball at the end of those playoff yeah. games. You don't want that. Brogdon's better than him. Yeah, no, it's definitely where they could they could certainly use an update upgrade there. And they do have a huge glut of wings that I guess a lot of this depends on like, what's the Nets priority for next season? Are they like, if they're trying to get back competitive now, which they can make the case for with given if they, you know, if they trade for another star and they have all these first round picks for the future after their haul for, for Durant and Bridges looks like he's, you know, ready to you know, make some noise as a, you know, number two option there, then yeah, a guy like Brogdon would make plenty of sense for them as a 
you know, a good, you know, third option on that team. Um, if not, then Brogdon, I think in their mind might be just a guy who's entering his thirties and it's like, okay, he's going to, he's not on our timeline. Um, so yeah, that, but I think you're, I like where your head's at in terms of like, that's, those are the type of players they should be, you know, getting another wing instead of Brogdon that can defend and hit a three that I think those are exactly the type of guys that you should be in the market for if you're going to shop Brogdon here. And, and, um, with Curry, I'd like him a lot. He's actually for that to work. That'd be he'd have to do a sign trade with him because actually I think he's going to become a a free agent here this off season. But um, I'll be curious to see what his market is, and certainly some sort of tie-in trade involving Brockton there could be definitely appealing to the Celtics. Yeah, and I just think in terms of the Finney Smith thing, I just want lower usage players, if you, especially if you're bringing back Tatum and Brown, right? Guys that can right. just knock down three. So that's why I thought that could fit, and I just threw Curry in there because. I feel like he's yeah, been to make under- the money work. Yeah, yeah, you got to make the money work. But I feel like he's been an underrated player for a long time now. All right. So the the other thing I was thinking is maybe like I was trying to figure out a way to get like Terrence Mann, but that would be like difficult based on the money because mm-hmm. that's a six five wing that I feel like is sort of underused with the Clippers, especially considering when their two best players are healthy, they both play the wing. But it'd be tough to get there. Like you'd have to throw in maybe like Robert Covington's contract, which. He fell out of favor there as well. But it's those type of guys. It's like, and Dorian Finney-Smith is a much better defensive player than Man. Man just gives you a little bit more pop offensively. All right, so let's get to Grant. So reportedly he passed on, what was it, 4 for 50? So that's $12.5 million per season. And it was a really weird year for Grant. He fell out of favor, of course. We saw him out of the rotation during the regular season. We saw him out of the rotation in the postseason. We saw him have really good moments in the postseason as well. And you look at some of the numbers this year with Grant, with him at the four via cleaning the glass, the Celtics outscored teams by 4.6 points per 175th percentile. At center, they really, I thought they were going to use him at center more, but they started just at the beginning. They were using Cornette a ton. And he ended up, what, at center, they had a 120 offensive rating, 87th percentile, still shot 43% on corner threes this season, uh, or excuse me, 41, 43 last year. And 40 and 41% overall from three the past couple of years. So I just feel like if it's four for 56, which would be what, 14 million per year, he's entering his 25 year old season. And I know this team's going to get expensive with the new CBA and the punishments with the new CBA. But I just, if you don't have a solution to just letting Grant go somewhere else, I kind of feel like even if Grant's not here for the length of the contract, it's better having that contract. Like that is not going to be a bad contract for a guy that can shoot. And I know he didn't have as good of a defensive season as he had two years ago. I just feel like it would behoove the Celtics to keep him around based on the fact that I think he's going to be deemed as a valuable player for good teams across the league. Yeah, it's it's a situation where they can they just cannot afford to let him walk for nothing. They're not in a situation as far as their um, timetable as a franchise to be able to replace that, especially as these, like you said, the, the their salaries go up and up in the next couple of years when these two max kind of kick in for Tatum and Brown. And so a player like Grant, you want, you want him to be on a, a contract that's appealing to you and appealing to other teams around the league. And so the interesting part of these negotiations, I feel like you're gonna, Brian is like Grant's camp can kind of look at it as two ways. Obviously they, they hope that some team will find him to a big offer sheet and push the Celtics hand. And that becomes easier this year since the the matching period for restricting free agents is down to 24 hours, which is makes it di- could make a big difference in terms of making teams less gun shy about signing those contracts. 
which has been a rarity for mid-level guys like himself for years. Or if they don't, and there's not a lot of cap space out there and everyone's like, mm, like 60 million for grand. I don't know about that. Like, I think we'd rather go for a star or someone cheaper. Then the Celtics have to make a decision here. Okay. Do we want to offer a long-term deal to Grant to just get him locked up? That's okay. Appealing for them. Or do they do for something shorter? Do like a, Hey, Grant, you want to sign for that much? Right. We'll, we'll pay a little bit more for the next two years. And then you can hit unrestricted free agency sooner. And that's something where yeah. it, it doesn't appeal to um, isn't perfect for both sides, but it could be a, a solution to kind of um, keep the Celtics long-term flexibility going. If they don't feel comfortable investing, you know, that, that big check into Grant for the long-term. What do you think happened with him this year? Because it felt like, I don't know if they just thought his defense wasn't the same, but I just felt it was so bizarre if you had told me prior to the season, B-Rob, hey, one of the main guys from the rotation last year, Grant Williams, who we saw was so impactful in that Milwaukee series, right? He wasn't as good against Miami, but he was a really good player for them two years ago. I was just shocked that he was out of the rotation. What do you think the reason was? Was it they thought his defense slipped or they wanted to just give other guys opportunities? What was it? It's It's bizarre because he did have his like, he did have some slumps. And that's understandable, but you would think Grant in his fourth year with what he's meant to this team in the last couple of years, like you stick with a guy through those. And I guess whether Joe Mazzula wanted to experiment more, give, you know, he had other alternatives, you know, as far as bigs across the bench or just playing smaller with, with Derek White in the fold. And once Rob came back into play, it seemed like that's when, when Rob came back and the Celtics had gotten things out of, you know, Blake and Luke Cornett and even Muscal for a bit. Like it, it gave Joe almost maybe too many options. And you would just, in my mind, Grant's always a guy that's like, if you want to get to where you want to go this year, you're going to need Grant because you weren't going to be turning to Cornett or Blake Griffin or whoever in the postseason. And even honestly, Rob to a degree, like, you know, Rob is important, but as far as his durability goes, like you're, and as far as late game situations go, Grant is the most likely your option. In yeah. a lot of those games in the postseason. So in my mind, it was it was tough to, to see him, you know, it was it was questionable to see him, you know, have his confidence play with like that. And I think he did his best to, to play through it. But I think that was a situation where if they could go back and do it again, you know, you, you want to build him up as opposed to like have him questioning himself, which clearly happened at points in the second half of that year and even the playoffs early on. Yeah, it was bizarre. Really, really a bizarre season for Grant Williams. And Give him credit. He handled it well. I give him credit yeah. for that. So I want to get to this. So June 20th, you have in your article up right now at MassLive.com is the deadline for Danilo Gallinari's $6.8 million player option. And you mentioned that he's going to pick it up because he's coming <laughs> off a torn ACL. So he picked it up last September. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's passing on that, right? So anyway, the point being he's a good three-point shooter, 38.1% from deep in his career, been north of 40% three of the last four years. The offense with him on the court two years ago in Oklahoma City was 118.4, which is in the 92nd percentile. Actually, a couple of years ago, it was 15 points per 100 better in OKC. I should say that 118.4 was in Atlanta. So he really does yeah. help good offense because we know he can shoot. He's a good catch and shoot guy. He can actually do some things in the post because he can just sort of barrel through defenders. His post numbers are really good a couple of years ago. I would like to see him get some opportunities with the Celtics just because... 
I almost, for, until I saw your article, I totally forgot he's on the team. I'm like, oh yeah, Gallo, he's been sitting on the bench all year and he's been working out. And so it's just unfortunate he never got on the floor. But as you mentioned in the article, that's $6.8 million. It may be important if they want to sort of make a trade and use his salary as matching salary. So what do you think is the most likely outcome here? Is he back with the team or do you think they have to use him in a trade? I think the most likely outcome is he's back, um, at least until this year's trade deadline. Um, I honestly think, Brian, if they if they didn't move him at this past trade deadline to move to to improve that team, because knowing like he wasn't going to give them anything this past year, which which would have stunk, which would have been like a tough look. You, you you sign this guy and then you 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 dump him before he even has a chance. Yeah, it's like that. That's not great for morale purposes. But like, would you feel better in the NBA finals right now than like than that? Like, that's the kind of stuff you look at. So it's like. In my mind, once they decided to keep him for that, I would be surprised if they move him this offseason for that same reason. It's like that money, yeah, it could be used for the right deal. Like he might be eventually be moved if he comes back and just isn't the same player after the torn ACL. Um, but to your point, like those numbers mentioned, like there's a reason why they signed him in the first place. This offense could certainly need, could use another shooter, another, you know, post player, someone who can create a little bit for himself and others. And hopefully he can still be that guy. And I think it's probably at that price, it's and he's going to be a negative value contract if you move him now. So you're going to have to probably package picks or something like that, or a useful player like Pritchard to even, you know, get off that money. So based on that, um, I think it's a possibility he gets moved this offseason, but I think the likelihood is that he's back and you at least see what you have of him with this group um, in the least in the first half of the season. All right, B-Rob. So before we let you go. We talked about the possibility of trading Brogdon, maybe trading Smart. So I don't think either one of us would be shocked if they move one of those guards this offseason. We talked about the Jalen possibility of a trade. Is there a surprising trade candidate on this team? Like, is there any way? I hope not. But is there any way they would trade a Robert Williams? I would think that would be sort of in a big trade deal. But is there anybody under the radar here that you think the Celtics could look to move this offseason? It's a fascinating question. I honestly think no especially the way that Brad Stevens talked about it at his press conference last week of saying like, you know, we, we really we're making small tweaks. And in my mind, if you're moving a Rob, if you're moving someone who you expect to be in your starting five next year. And I think Rob is one of those guys that would be, that'd be a surprise to me. So Al Horford, you already resigned him at this stage of his career. You're not going to move him at this point. Like he's there. He signed that deal with you for a reason. So, and with Rob, I still think that the upside is still high enough where they're, they're really big believers in Rob there. And, and his contract is not prohibitive in terms of anything you want to do. And so I think we, the, t- the guys that could be on the move are the guys we're talking about. Is It's the, it's a Gallinari's of the road, the Brockton's of the road. Payne Pritchard is an obvious candidate if, if one of those guys isn't moved um, as far as the guards go. But I would be shocked if we get like a, a bigger shake up than that at this point. But I do think, I mean, would like, would you even consider that? Like what, what type of, is there a return for Rob that would like entice you? Cause I'm not sure his value is no, I, I think to get it, it. I think it would be, have to be part of like a big, like a huge, like a three teamer that had right. Jalen going somewhere and Rob going somewhere and you getting some superstar back in return. That's the only way I would do it. I I love Rob Williams. I look at the the numbers with him, Derek White and Tatum off on the court this year. They were the second best of any three-man unit in the NBA. With him, it's just all about health and keeping him on the floor. I mean, we even saw 
in Game Seven of the NBA or the Conference Finals, I was upset that he wasn't getting more minutes. And we find out he was throwing up during the <laughs> third quarter. So even when it isn't a lower extremity issue or something along those lines, he was dealing with throwing up, which is unfortunate. I just, it just, it's tough to bank on the guy, right? Because he's, it feels like he's always dealing with something. But we know when he's on the court, he is so impactful. I mean, he changed the Philly series. When they decided, hey, let's put him on the court, like I still, that one, B-Rub, I still can't understand that, why it took him so long to pull the trigger on that one. P.J. Tucker, he was starting the game. The way to get Rob the most minutes was to start him against P.J. Tucker. That one aggravated the shit out of me, but I I mean, I I would love the, like, I I really think that if they come back next year with pretty much the same team, a couple of tweaks, like, like I said, I mean, like you mentioned, it's a great point, like for... I'm dreaming about the Curry thing. That would have to be a sign and trade, but getting an extra wing in there, a Dorian Finney-Smith, something along those lines. And the one other thing I would think is somebody else with some creation. And that's why I mm-hmm. thought of maybe Curry over Brogdon, but Curry, that would be have to be part of a sign and trade. But an additional wing to help Tatum and Brown, like in terms of giving them breaks every once in a while, and then somebody that can give you some creation because that's something that I felt was lacking, especially after the Brogdon injury in the postseason. 100 percent. And so that's these are all the the big picture issues. A lot of the stuff that po- that popped up in the postseason was stuff that came up over the course of the regular season. So they have a you know, there are a different number of different ways they can go there. But I think a lot of those solutions you laid out, like it doesn't solve the entire puzzle, but it can, you know, make all the pieces come together a little bit better. Yeah, well, and who knows? Maybe Dallas is just unbeatable next year with Kyrie, LeBron yeah. and Luca. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to be able to touch them. All right, that is Brian Robb from MassLive.com. Has an article up right now, Celtics offseason timeline, Danilo Gallinari deadline, and Mike Mascala option date. B-Rob, thank you so much for joining us throughout the season, man. Had a ton of fun, and we'll continue to do some stuff during the offseason. Thanks so much, man. All right, thanks for having me. It's almost time to crown an NBA champion, and FanDuel wants you to be part of the excitement. Because right now, new customers can get a no-sweat-first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. And I'm looking at Game 3. How about this same game parlay? Plus 328, Nuggets on the money line. They bounce back after that Game 2 loss. Jamal Murray, not a great game for him. He goes for 25. Three made threes. And two made threes for Michael Porter Jr., who was miserable in that game the other day. So I like Murray and Porter to bounce back. So plus 328, Nuggets on the money line, Murray 25 points, three made threes for Murray, and two made threes for Michael Porter Jr. There's no better place to bet on all the finals action than America's number one sports book. Visit fanduel.com slash pike and get a no-sweat-first bet up to $2,500. That's fanduel.com slash pike. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG. In Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP protects next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777, or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, gamblinghelplinema.org, or call 
800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 in New York. 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, great stuff there from B-Rob. Always like talking to him about the season, previewing the offseason. And yeah, I really would like Curry on the Celtics. I just, I have an infatuation with the way that he plays and I love him on the team, but I know that would have to be, as B-Rob pointed out, that it would have to be some sort of sign and trade. But the big main piece that I want back in that trade, of course, is Dorian Finney-Smith. So the Celtics would have to find a way to make that work in terms of, or the Nets would, to get that additional money to match come pretty close to matching Brogdon's contract. But that's the type of player I want rather than Malcolm Brogdon because you have a guy that can play elite defense against threes, against fours. He was so impactful for that team against Dallas. And the good thing for the Celtics is Brooklyn has all these wings. They have Cam Johnson. They have Mikhail Bridges. It's unbelievable. So that type of player, that's the guy I really want. A guy like Dorian Finney-Smith, who I believe the shooting will come back to what it was a couple of years ago. That's the type of guy that I think could be an upgrade over Brogdon where what we found out about Brogdon in the postseason, I know he was dealing with an injury, is if he's not shooting the basketball well, he really isn't an effective player because he's a poor defender, a very poor defender, and he's not a great passer. He doesn't really create offense. And Dorian Finney-Smith is a much more low-maintenance player, if you will. Not that Brogdon's a problem. I'm just saying, it's not like you have to say, hey, Dorian, here's the ball. Go create some offense. Or, hey, I need my opportunity to run a pick and roll. No, he's just going to sit in the corner and shoot three. So I would love that type of fit instead of a Malcolm Brogdon on this team. Nothing against Brogdon, great season and all that. I just feel like for this team, a wing that can shoot, that can defend would be a much better fit. All right, by the way, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can at 617-396-7172. That's 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. And that's where we bring in our producer, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's up, man? I'm chilling. Back in Massachusetts. Enjoying a little New England spring, summer, having a good time. I like it, man. I like it. It's a good time to be here, although the weather has not been great the past couple of days. 90 over the weekend, and then we get all this rain and stuff along those lines. Or I should say 90 late last week, right? Friday and Mm -hmm. Thursday. The weather has not been great since then. Well, it's looking up this week, and uh, I'm down for a little rain every once in a while. It's all good. I hear you, man. I... I much rather have the 90 degree day than shoveling. So, or the rain go. instead of shoveling. So, I'm okay I with concur. that. Um, well, just to keep with the Celtics thing, the, the mailbag is buzzing with Celtics news. This one, though, is maybe the juiciest. We'll see what Leroy has to say. He writes, We are making Brown the scapegoat here. Sure enough, he has a weakness other players are going to capitalize on. However, Jason Tatum is also a great liability that most people don't want to acknowledge. If Boston is realistic about hanging Banner 18, Tatum and his issues need to be addressed. The team cannot build around him. He cannot lead the team. He can be a great complimentary player, but he cannot be the nucleus. I would seek a trade for him with his perceived value. I think we could get a bona fide superstar who understands the game better. He scores more than Brown because he has the ball in his hands. Uh, He did a little bit better passing this year, but he makes lots of ill-advised drives. And he gets bailed out by fouls. Many other players said, Make these drives can still score. Um, And then he has one other point that might be a bit more valid. He says, finally, get us a coach who's not afraid to hold his players accountable and willing to sit any players that are underperforming. In the final game, Tatum was injured, Brogdon was coming back from injury, and Brown was anxious with the ball. 
These three players were hurting the team, but he refused to take them out and would rather go down with the ship. That is stupidity when you have a bench of capable players. Um, what do you make of those two points, Brian? Okay, a couple of things. So first of all, Jalen's assist percentage was down this year compared to last year. So he was actually a better passer two years ago than he was this past season. And I understand where Jalen got a lot of blame because he had the eight turnovers. You needed him to pick up Jason Tatum because Tatum was clearly hurt. He didn't do it. I mean, there's no way around it. Jalen's turnovers hurt the Celtics. Jalen's lack of scoring in the NBA finals cost the Celtics, or the conference finals, I should say, cost the Celtics where what? Four games south of 20 points when he's a guy averaging in the mid-20s this past season. Jason Tatum is the far superior player to Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown, unbelievable shot maker and all that. Tatum is clearly a better playmaker. Tatum is a better defender. Tatum is also younger than Jalen Brown. And I would just like to know, who are you trading Jason Tatum for <laughs> that you're getting a better player, right? Yeah. It's not like you can call up the Mavericks and say, hey, we want Luka, or call up the Nuggets and say, hey, you know what? The guy that's about to win you the championship, Nikola Jokic, we would take that guy. I just don't see the guy that you're going to get back that is better than Jason Tatum. And if you are, maybe it's going to be an old guy, right? Like somebody that's in his mid-30s, right? So I just don't see the trade where this is a wing that hasn't even hit his prime yet. Jason Tatum just finished his 24-year-old season. He's going to be in his 25-year-old season. Jalen Brown, and we've already seen Tatum take these big steps as a playmaker, these big steps as a passer. We've seen him get to the free throw line more, which happened this past season where he went up by more than two attempts per game. We've seen Jalen Brown improve in certain areas, but he's never had these big improvements in those type of areas that are important for a guy that's going to be, for lack of a better term, your every down back. Jason Tatum's the guy that's running the offense. Jalen Brown could never do that. I gave you the numbers on the Sunday pod where the offense actually gets worse with when he's on the court without Derek White and Jason Tatum, the offense is terrible. On the season, the offense was worse when Jalen Brown was on the court than off the court. This is your second best player. And I like Jalen. I think I told... Me and B-Rob had the conversation. I think the most likely scenario is that he's back. But you cannot compare Jason Tatum to Jalen Brown. Jason Tatum is just a way more talented player. In terms of having a coach that would hold guys accountable, they had that guy. Unfortunately, he got himself <laughs> suspended for the season in Ime. Ime is the guy that would call these guys out in press conferences all the time. So they had that type of guy. But this is what I'll say. Credit to the Celtics. Sam Cassell is that type of personality, okay, as... The lead assistant on this team going forward. This is a slam dunk hire for the Celtics. They do have that guy here. Now, in terms of benching guys in the fi in the Eastern Conference Finals, I keep saying finals because I wish they were in the freaking finals, but are you really going to say to Jalen Brown in the third quarter of Game 7, or as, an, as a coaching staff, even though Jalen is sucking, are you really thinking, let's sit him? I mean, no. You don't think that way. No. You can think that way with certain role players, but you cannot think that way with Jalen Brown. <laughs> And you're calling Jalen Brown the scapegoat, but you want him out of the game. So I, I don't really follow that whole, mm. the process behind that logic. But you you don't sit, it'd be one thing if it was like way earlier in the season, but you don't sit down Jalen Brown in game seven. You just don't do it. I don't think you sit Tatum either. I mean, obviously he was compromised with an ankle, but he's your guy. It's like, you know, throwing Tom Brady out there. You're still going to go with him, even if he's at 50, 60%. Yeah. And it didn't take Miami, it took Miami until like the, Midway through the third quarter, realized he couldn't move and go after yeah. him. It took them forever to actually make that move. And he at least garners attention and gravity mm -hmm, on the offensive sure. side of the court, right? Like, you still have to pay attention to him. And the guy was gutting through an injury. He's not going to come out of the. You're, you're going to say, hey, Jason, uh, I know your first team all no, NBA two, two years happen. in a row. 
I know you're going to be a Supermax player, but you know what? Let's get you out. No. And what's, who's, what's the upgrade? Who's the upgrade for him? You're going to put Brogdon in there? Brogdon was horrible. Yeah. Like, who are you taking off? You put Pritchard in there? Who are you? Ta- Hauser is going to replace Tatum? Like, Tatum has an important job, too. Like, he handles the basketball all the time. So, no, you couldn't bench either one of those guys in Game 7. That would have been... That may have actually got Missoula fired, to be honest with you. If he actually did that, that would have got him fired. Yeah. All right, Jamie, who's up next? Um, the next guy, this is from Nate. He's throwing out a couple uh, Brown trades, though. I think they kind of run into some trouble for what you were just saying in terms of what his value is these days. But um, here are a couple things he's writing. He writes, I'm not sold on giving JB the Supermax, but realistically, there aren't that many good options. Um... I think we also need to split up the guard trio. He's writing, I think the Celtics desperately need a true playmaking point guard. The Lamelo idea from KOC is interesting, and I love his potential pairing with JT as well as Lobster Rob. Obviously, the Dame Tatum pairing would be lethal, but I wouldn't sacrifice the next 10 years for the next two to three, which you guys were just talking about. I also want Murray, DeJounte Murray, on this seas for a couple years from now, but the three picks are far too steep a price for him. Is there a world in which Smart could be included in a Murray deal, and you keep Jalen Brown. Smart is the exact type of guy that will allow Trey to be Trey while providing security on the defensive end. That's trade number one he's proposing. The next one he's proposing is, I also love the idea of bringing Laurie Markin into the Seas ever since his breakout this season. Danny Ainge has been intrigued by the potential of receiving Jalen, but we have no other real prospects to get something like that done without giving up J.B., I'd do it knowing we'd receive a little more than just marketing. Um, and then he writes, or else we basically run it back and see if that works. So those three trades, what do you make of those? Okay. So I'm having a lot of fun with the trade machines this summer mm-hmm. too. Maybe too much fun because I missed the Curry thing. So I had to go back and do that trade over again. But I do want Dorian Finney-Smith. I want him for Malcolm Brogdon. But anyway, getting back to my original point here is in terms of the smart Murray swap, I just... How could Atlanta do that, right? They just gave up three first-round picks for this guy. Like, if it was Jalen Brown, yeah, yeah, sure, they would do it, right? Like, Jalen Brown's a cleaner fit with Trey Young, just like we were talking about on Sunday's pod, Darian Garland, or Darius Garland, rather, is a cleaner fit with Jason Tatum. So when you look at it from that perspective, it just it's not enough to get DeJounte Murray. You, you can't just give up Marcus Smart. Like, there would have to be a lot more included in that deal. So I don't see that one happening. The Utah thing, Laurie Markkinen had an outstanding season. That just feels like you're not getting enough in return. Yeah. Well, and also you're not getting enough in return for Jalen Brown and Danny Ainge knows like, could Jalen Brown just leave the team? And I know he drafted Jalen Brown, but Jalen Brown's a free agent after the season. You think Jalen Brown wants to sign a supermax to play in Salt Lake city? (laughs) I just, I I don't see that being a possibility. So that's why I keep coming back to the fact that I think the most likely scenario is they run it back. But I would tell you this, and we had this conversation with B-Rob earlier. I couldn't pass on Lillard. Even if I know like he's going to age poorly, we see it with these small diminutive point guards. He's too good of a scorer. For the next two years, he's going to be too good of a scorer for me to pass up on that and say, hey, let's roll with Tatum and Damian Lillard because the main piece going back would be Jalen Brown. I'm wondering what else the Celtics would have to include in that deal, but I don't think it would. Now, you'd have to do something in terms of matching the salary. But if the deal is basically surrounded around Damian Lillard and Jalen Brown, I would do it. He's too good. And Jason Tatum, by the time Lillard is sort of aging out, he's still going to be under contract with the Supermax, and you're still going to have one of the better players in the NBA. So it's not like all of a sudden 
hey, the Celtics are irrelevant because Damian Lillard's old and not great anymore. You're still going to have one of maybe at that time the best wing player in the entire NBA. So I could not pass on the Dame situation. I think they're going to have a tough time moving Dame. I really don't know who else is like, he's a great player, but who else has what it takes to get Damian Lillard for what they're asking? So that's that Portland situation is weird. It really is. Just be, I'd just be so worried about putting all that pressure on this team to win in the next two to three years, you know, and then it just feels like there's already a lot of pressure. And then like, okay, you got a ticking clock. You got two years, three years with Damian Lillard. You better win or else you're going from two lottery NBA guys to one. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I do feel with Lillard, he would be your most efficient scorer by yeah. a wide margin. So it wouldn't have to always fall on Tatum late in these That's games. True. We saw how bad they were in clutch games. Damian Lillard's an outstanding player in terms of closing out games. And Portland this season was like outscoring teams when Lillard was on the court. That team fucking sucked. There's a reason they have, what, the third overall selection. And with Lillard, they were a positive team. Like that shouldn't even be possible. And I know he has his deficiencies defensively, but one of the things I look at in like the modern day NBA is that was a thing in the mid part of the last decade where it was like LeBron, right? Where LeBron was at the peak of his powers, he was always mismatch hunting. And we see it with Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler is a guy that does it really well as, as well, but it's not as prevalent. Think about all the guys the Heat were playing and I get they have their zone, but they were playing Duncan Robinson, major minutes. They were playing Kevin Love. He's working. Yeah, like they... But And it's working for them, but that should be a guy that sh- should yeah. not be able to survive on the right. defensive end of the court, but he could, right? We see this throughout the NBA where guys that would be perceived as defensive liabilities, they're playing big minutes in postseason games. So if you have a guy that's going to give you 32, you can survive with him on the other end yeah. as well. For sure. Um, last question, though. In terms of like finding destinations that... Oh, this is my question. Sorry, to be clear. Um, like saying JB doesn't want to go to Utah, which obviously he doesn't. But what if you give him the Supermax and then deal him? Like, doesn't it not kick well, in the next year? Yeah, well, there's a timeline before you can trade him after you give him the Supermax. So you wouldn't be able to give him the Supermax and trade him. Right. All right. Well, I agree. He's probably not going to be too thrilled about going to Salt Lake City. But who knows? Maybe he likes skiing. This is the last question. This is from Chip in Connecticut. Chip writes... Uh, there was a sort of hive mentality amongst the players, coaches, and even the crowd in Game 7 when they were losing, a sense of impending meltdown and failure. We saw this over and over throughout the season in the playoffs. It isn't just a talent problem. It's because of inexperienced coaching and a lack of strategy and adjustment. The last three Celtics coaches have all been first-time NBA coaches. While they've experienced some solid success, they've all fallen short of the one thing that counts, a championship. There's been a slow and steady but predictable drop-off in success under each coach. Uh, not coincidentally, each successive coach has had less experience as, they, as they've moved, quote-unquote, forward. Um, how would you grade Joe Mazzulla's performance overall this season? What about in the playoffs for the team as a whole? If Joe Mazzulla improves 100% next year, well, what does that mean? Seems unlikely without significant help. And then one other piece he writes that I thought was kind of interesting is, Celtics should consider an NFL-type style coaching model where there are NBA-experienced offensive and defensive coaches with the autonomy to develop and create plays, strategy, and even call timeouts, design plays to counteract the opponent doing what the opponent is doing and take advantage of their players' strengths and the opponent's weaknesses. They can't just run it back with the same coach, the same single three-point strategy, and expect the players to make it any better by themselves. What do you think of that, Brian? 
Well, most teams pretty much have that now. Yeah. I mean, if you look at when Steve Nash first took the job in Brooklyn, Ime was the defensive coordinator, essentially, and Mike D'Antoni was like the offensive coordinator. Look at the Celtics when they won their championship in 2008. Tom Thibodeau was the guy sort of conducting their defense. The Warriors had a similar thing where they had Ron Adams basically conducting their defense for years. So this is what teams have done across the league. So I understand that part of it in terms of, and I do feel like they now have a guy in Sam Cassell that can be in charge of one side of the ball and obviously work with guys in terms of their skill development as well. So they're going to have that part in terms of his grade in the postseason. C minus, D plus? F. Even at F? I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe C minus is too too nice. I would say D plus based on, for a couple of reasons. Uh, We mentioned the fact that he was too late to get to the two big lineup in the Philly series. Rob should have been starting. That was how you got, would have been able to get Rob more minutes. The fact that Grant didn't play in game one against Miami and Pritchard did, you never had a solution to the zone whatsoever. Grant wasn't playing at the beginning of the Atlanta series, which made no sense to me whatsoever. Some of the late game execution, the fact that your team was absolutely atrocious in these clutch games throughout the postseason, that points to a lack of ability to generate good offense. Like I look at the end of game six where the Celtics won on the crazy Derek White play. If they didn't make that play, we'd be talking about how bad the offense was down the stretch Mm -hmm. because up until that point, they had been outscored, what, 14 to four down the stretch of the game. So I don't think he did a ton to help the team in the postseason. And look, it's a weird situation. I think we'll get a better idea of who Joe Mazzula is as a coach going forward now that he has at least one assistant that we know about in Sam Cassell that is a veteran guy that's been around the league. And now it's going to be more guys that are part of Joe's coaching staff, not Joe taking over Ime's coaching staff, which is just a really weird situation to begin with. And like I said, it's not like the Celtics could do anything to avoid like what the staff was because the Ime thing happened so late. But mm-hmm. all in all, I, I would say during the regular season, I think he was fine, I especially for a first-year coach. I mean, the only thing, and we harped on this a little bit earlier, the Grant situation, I didn't totally understand. And I understand that part of it is on the players, but they had way too many stinkers where, for example, yeah. Washington. How did they lose that Washington game when the one seed was on the line? And you can say it's about the players too. I certainly understand that. But when you have so many of those losses, yeah, sometimes you got to look at the like the OKC loss, the Houston loss, right? Rockets, where you're just yeah, totally. yeah, you're not ready to play. Orlando, so those type of things that I would say you'd put on the coach. But hey, they did the right thing in terms of getting more help heading into next mm-hmm. season. Yeah, and just to clarify, I I didn't mean to give Missoula an F. I think he did better. I think the team in general, not getting back to where they were last year, deserves a failing grade. But I think he did okay. I'd say D plus. They weren't yeah. ready. They weren't ready for Atlanta. Like yeah. after they won the first two games, it felt like they were going to sweep that series. They weren't ready. So I, I would D plus. Well, the same is thing fair. you said. There there were stinkers in the regular season. There were stinkers in the playoffs that elongated these series, and it cost them. And one other thing I thought, I think he stressed offense too much. Yeah, like, for sure. And he finally, in the series against Miami, he finally brought up the defensive identity. Not to say that they weren't working on defense throughout the season, but he always would revert back to, hey, we didn't hit enough shots. That type of stuff, right? <laughs> well, we didn't hit enough shots. That well, led for, to easy opportunities for them, right? Because they're in transition. I just felt like he harped on the offense a little bit too much for my liking. Yeah, you're not going to hit those shots in the playoffs. Like, you play a little tighter, and they're not going to all fall, and you need to be able to grit through that. I agree. Right, and for the people that would point to, hey, the Celtics were second during the regular season in defensive rating. Yeah, they were, because they had a lot of outstanding games, but look at them in the postseason, where their defense completely fell off a cliff, where they were south of or north of 114 
what, like eight times this postseason, and last year that happened once in the entire postseason. So Mm -hmm. that just tells you they didn't bring the necessary effort, they didn't have the necessary defensive scheme each and every night like they did in last year's postseason. Yeah. Last thing just about this question, though, I thought it was kind of an interesting point in terms of the coaches they've hired from Stevens to Ime to Missoula, and obviously the Ime to Missoula thing wasn't as planned, but what do you make of the Celtics kind of finding these first-time coaches the last few times? Like, obviously, it's kind of sexy and fun when you get this new young guy, but do you think something's lost not bringing in, like, a veteran coach? No, I I don't, because, first of all, Brad was really good for a number of years. And we can say, hey, the message sort of ran stale at the end. I think Brad was tired of coaching. I think if you look at Brad's season, he just looked exhausted at the end. But Brad was really good at right away. Brad was good. And even the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, has said he stole one of his plays. Like, Teams across the league were taking mm-hmm. stuff that Brad was doing. Brad was an outstanding coach for a number of years. And then Ime, his first year, wouldn't we all agree he was outstanding? Yeah, success. And even if you could say a lot of it's due to Will Hardy, fine, but Ime was really good. So because Joe, who was not ready for a head coaching job yet, he was sort of ahead of schedule. I don't think you should point at that and say, hey, that's a reason not to hire a first year head coach, right? And mm-hmm. look across, the, like Eric Spolstra. He gets a job and he wins a championship pretty shortly after his. he gets his first opportunity as a head coach in the NBA. Ty Lue is on the Cleveland Cavaliers bench. They get rid of David Blatt. He gets promoted. Right. He wins an NBA championship. So we've seen a lot of these guys. Phil Jackson wasn't a head coach before he got the Chicago Bulls job, and he won a championship there with Michael Jordan before they had Doug Collins. Couldn't really get that team over the hump. And Phil Jackson unleashed this whole new offense in the NBA along with Tex Winter, the triangle offense. They won a championship. So Mm -hmm. I think we've seen it on multiple occasions where guys that have coached for the first time have won a championship. So I don't have anything against that sort of logic. I think the Joe situation is totally different than Brad, who was considered a genius at the collegiate level. Ime, who had paid his dues in the NBA, had been Mm -hmm. an assistant for a long time under Pop, then went to the Brooklyn Nets. Joe was just different because he sort of, it felt like he kind of cut the line, right? Because of the necessity of where the Celtics were at. So no, I I don't have an issue with giving a first time head coach an opportunity whatsoever. Okay, fair enough. I hear what you're saying. In terms of all these JB trades, when are we going to, when are we going to see him, you think? Like I was saying, I think he's going to get the Supermax, man. I think he's going to get the Supermax because I don't see a way that Jalen Brown's going to play ball with all sort of the scar tissue from the past couple of years. I just don't see him being willing to play ball. He knows what he he knows exactly what he qualifies for now. There's no negotiating it. Just give me the contract. And I think that's where the Celtics are going to be at. And I'm not like upset about that. Yeah, maybe not the worst thing. I feel like the trades are fun to look at. And if Garland was put on the table or Lillard was put on the table, I would have (laughs) to do those trades. All right. Great stuff, Jamie. Thanks, Brian. All right. Make sure if you want to get a email in that address is off the pike at gmail.com you can also leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172 again that's 617-396-7172 all right coming up next one thought on the bruins and one big thought on the patriots who may be able to solve one of their biggest issues in the near future we'll get to that next all right welcome back into off the pike so i don't know if you've been watching any of the stanley cup final because it's not a good look right now for the bruins Vegas won 7-2 in that game two on Monday. They won 5-2 on Saturday night. So they've now outscored the Panthers 12-4 by eight goals in the first two games. This, of course, is a Bruins team that could not beat the Panthers, lost to them in the seventh game, couldn't get by the first round. And now you have this Vegas team that is completely dominating, completely dominating the Florida Panthers, right? 
And you have the whole Bruce Cassidy thing here, right? Where Bruce Cassidy with his Vegas team is doing what Jim Montgomery couldn't do with his Bruins team. So it's a bad look. The optics are not great when it comes to that, right? And I just look at it from a Bruins perspective. It sucks. It sucks that you're seeing Bruce Cassidy do this in year one, especially considering it's against the team that the Bruins could not beat. So the last thing we all want to see is the former coach winning the Stanley Cup the year after he left. Nobody wants to see that, right? But this should not be a massive surprise. The team had a lot of talent. They had a down year. But this is a team that played in the Stanley Cup final a couple of years ago. They traded for a guy in Jack Eichel, who was an outstanding talent. He had just been dealing with a lot of injuries, and he got lit up in that game on Monday night by Kachuk, but he's had a really good postseason for that team. And we knew that Bruce Cassidy is a great coach. There is a reason that Bruce Cassidy was unemployed for the totality of, what, 10 minutes before Vegas is like, wait, hold on, Bruce Cassidy's available? Let's hire Bruce Cassidy. So yes, it sucks. And we're coming off a bad series for Jim Montgomery against Florida when we look at it, right? He waited too long to give Swayman an opportunity. He was too cold. You can't do it in game seven, make that switch. It should have happened in game five or it should have happened in game six, especially finding out what we knew that Olmark was dealing with an injury. So he had a bad series. He also inexplicably, and we went over this after the game, he took Grizzlick out of the lineup in game six and put Connor Clifton back in. It made no sense. Grizzlick was playing pretty well for them. Connor Clifton had been atrocious. So it didn't make any sense. The whole Marshawn Bergeron thing, remember? Now, he did fix that, but when they first brought Bergeron back from his injury, they had him on a different line than Marshawn, which is like, wait, hold on. These guys always play on the same line. What are you doing? It just didn't make any sense whatsoever. So he had a really bad series. He had a horrible series against Florida, right? And he would admit, he did admit after the series that he made some mistakes. So it looks bad right now. But the Bruins did, remember, have a record-breaking season, right? And you could say it's all for naught. I understand that. But Jake DeBrusque had his best season, career high with 50 points, and he did in only 64 games because, of course, he broke his ankle in the Winter Classic. But this is a guy that didn't get along with Bruce Cassidy. He demanded a trade. He asked for a trade. Now, he didn't get a trade because you weren't going to get a lot back for DeBrusque at the time that he asked for the trade. But do you think DeBrusque is back on the team this past season if Cassidy's back? Do you think he has by far his best season if he's still dealing with Bruce Cassidy as the head coach of the team. David Krejci also came back. Not a coincidence there. And you had all the defensemen this season in Montgomery's system more active in the rush. So sometimes you have to go from a good coach to a coach that is a better fit for the team right now. Bruce Cassidy is an outstanding coach. Nobody would debate that. That's why most of us thought that Bruce Cassidy should stay. And maybe it should be the front office that Don Sweeney should get his walking papers and not Bruce Cassidy after last year, right? Now, Sweeney made some outstanding moves. Give him a ton of credit for the trades he made. And he was right bringing in Jim Montgomery. It's just unfortunate. Like, think about it from a Red Sox perspective. Terry Francona was a great manager, but you needed to move on. Because remember, you had the chicken and the beer situation where Beckett, Lester, and Lackey and Buckholtz at times, they were eating chicken and playing video games in the clubhouse during games. And so Tito was so good in terms of being a player-friendly manager, but he ended up losing the clubhouse. They took him for granted, right? And they had that epic collapse where they went 7-20 and down the stretch. So Francona, who had a better resume than Cassidy, won two championships for the Red Sox. It was time to move, over from, move on from him. Now, <laughs> Bobby Valentine clearly wasn't the right fit. They fucked that up, but just... The point is, you needed to move on from the Francona situation because of what was going on in the clubhouse, etc. But Cassidy, it wasn't going to work here. 
And look at the Bruins with Montgomery this past season. 3.66 goals per game, which was second. Two years ago, they were 15th at 3.09. So if Cassidy was not in the cup finals, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Montgomery clearly needs to be better in the playoffs when the team is back there next year, and you hope they're back there this year, although next year, who knows what happens with this team. But to me, Bruce Cassidy, even if he wins the Stanley Cup, which looks incredibly likely right now because they're up two games to none, that doesn't symbolize a mistake from my perspective. And if you want to say, hey, Bruce Cassidy right now is a better coach than Jim Montgomery, most people would agree with you on that. But I'm just saying for where the team was at, for the issues that we're finding out the team had with Bruce Cassidy, it made sense to move on. Bruce Cassidy, there's a reason this team is two wins away. He's an outstanding coach, but it wasn't going to work here anymore. It just wasn't. A change was needed for this team. They had their best season. They had the best season in the history of the NHL. The coach was bad in the postseason. The team was bad in the postseason. That's what happened. So it sucks. We're going to watch Bruce Cassidy hold up the Stanley Cup in probably less than a week at this particular point. But at the same time, the Bruins made the right move. It's just going to be really difficult to deal with this in the coming days here. All right. One Patriots note. So Albert Breer in his MMQB column had this about DeAndre Hopkins. Despite perception out there, my sense is that O'Brien would be plenty on board with not against signing DeAndre Hopkins. Okay, I think for this, good insight there from Albert Breer, but it's more important that Hopkins would be willing to play for the Patriots than Bill O'Brien willing to have DeAndre Hopkins here, right? So what he's been looking for, DeAndre Hopkins, is something in the Odell Beckham Jr. range, which is about $15 million. That's what Odell Beckham Jr.'s scheduled to make this season. It can go up depending on how the year finishes for him. He could make about like 18. But if you look around the league, now the Browns are the other team that is, of course, linked to DeAndre Hopkins right now because of the connection with Deshaun Watson. But the Chiefs, like, remember he was talking about the quarterbacks that he wanted to play with? The Chiefs have no money. The Bills have no money. So unless he wants to play for nothing, he's not going to Buffalo and he's not going to Kansas City. And one of the things that interests me about about DeAndre Hopkins is if you look at him under Bill O'Brien and look, obviously there was some bad blood there that he traded him to Arizona and it was a terrible trade for Bill O'Brien. I'm sure he would admit that to you. But if you look at it in 2015, he was targeted 192 times. That was third in the entire NFL. And throughout his tenure there with Houston, he had his best seasons with Bill O'Brien because Bill O'Brien, we saw this same situation play out with Wes Welker, where he just will continually target the best receiving threat, whether it's a tight end, whether it's a receiver that you have. So with Hopkins, even though, yeah, he traded me away, he could also look at it and say, well, I'm going to get targeted a ton. Look at that team. We're looking at Kendrick Bourne, Thornton. They brought in a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm clearly the alpha and the omega of the receiving group. I'm clearly the best receiver, the best receiving option they have on that roster. And if I'm DeAndre Hopkins, I'm looking at my options. If I'm really gung-ho on getting that $15 million per year, there's not many teams across the league that could offer you that. And if you look at the Patriots, they look like a team that at the low end is going to be a top five defense. You could make an argument they're going to be a top three defense in the NFL. They got their missing piece as it pertains to Christian Gonzalez at the corner position. And if you look at this offense, if you bring in DeAndre Hopkins... It starts to make a lot more sense. Juju Smith-Schuster is probably a two, right? That's when he's been at his best. Kansas City last year when Kelsey was the number one option. Going back to Pittsburgh with Antonio Brown when he was the number two option to Antonio Brown. When he's been asked to be the number one guy, it hasn't gone well. But as a number two guy, he's been really good. 
You think about Kendrick Bourne, probably a number three receiver, although I think that he can be better than that, but you get my point. Tyquan Thornton still coming into his own as an NFL receiver. You want to dial things up to get him the ball down the field, get him the ball in space and all that different type of stuff. And if you have a guy that the defense has to game plan for and has to account for and has to say, are we doubling or, or not? Because if we don't double him, he's going to have a massive game. So just having that attention, right? It's like having a great shooter in the NBA where it's like, okay, Clay Thompson, we cannot leave him in the corner. He always has to have a defender on him, which opens up spacing for everybody else. And that's the same thing that DeAndre Hopkins does. He'll open things up for everybody else on the team. So if you're DeAndre Hopkins, you could look at it and say, okay, I'll be clearly the number one guy. And we've seen all the reports, training camp or OTAs, I should say, it's going great. Max looked better. You know this if you're DeAndre Hopkins. Even though you have issues with Bill O'Brien in the past in terms of him trading you to Arizona, you do know this. You thrived in his offense, and his offense was pretty fucking good, okay? He ran a pretty good offense for you. So you can look at it and say, okay, he's a good offensive coordinator. I think the quarterback is good enough, especially with me and the rest of the guys. Like That would be a really unbelievable receiving group if you had DeAndre Hopkins, right? Where you're like, now it all fits. And then you think about it, well, the defense is going to be really good on the other side of the ball. Like This is a team that I could sign a three-year contract for and be in the postseason. This team with DeAndre Hopkins, they are a playoff team next season if they have DeAndre Hopkins. And so you're hoping that DeAndre Hopkins can convince himself it's worth working with Bill O'Brien again. The other thing I would say is this. If you're the Patriots, he's entering his 31-year-old season. It's not like he's 35 36 years old. He was still averaging 80 yards per game last season. He's still a premier receiver in the game. And this would be Bill fashion, right? Where it's like, oh, he's kind of undervalued right now because all these teams don't have salary cap space. We know Bill loves him. We've all seen that video of him talking with DeAndre Hopkins before the Patriots and the Cardinals game this season. He shouldn't want to play for you, right? He shouldn't want to be here because of the Bill O'Brien thing and because of the fact that the Patriots don't look like one of the big time contenders in the NFL. He shouldn't want to be here. He should want to be with the Chiefs or the Bills, as we mentioned, the quarterbacks that he wanted to play for. But this is where he's at because of his contract. This is unreal. Like this situation is working out perfectly for the Patriots if they want to make a play for DeAndre Hopkins because they can offer him what other teams can't. In a perfect reality for DeAndre Hopkins, he would not be playing for the Patriots. And the Patriots have this unreal opportunity to be able to sneak in and get one of the best receivers in the NFL still at his age. Take advantage of it. And then you do have an accurate assessment of what Mac Jones is as a quarterback because he'd have a competent offensive coordinator in Bill O'Brien, a bona fide legitimate number one receiver in DeAndre Hopkins, and a bunch of other good weapons when we're talking about Bourne, and we'll see what Thornton is. But Juju Smith-Schuster, Gasecki at the tight end position, Hunter Henry at the tight end position. I just feel like this is the one move, and I've been harping on this all season, the one offseason, I should say, the one move the Patriots have to make is get that legitimate number one receiver. He is right there. Get him on your team. Get him on your team now, and then I really would feel incredible about the Patriots offseason. I already loved their draft. I loved their draft. I felt like Juju Smith-Schuster is a slight upgrade over Jacoby Myers. I like a lot of the stuff the Patriots did, but there's still that one move away and it's sitting there and it feels like there is at least an opportunity to cash in and land DeAndre Hopkins. So go do it. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.